evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE, and uh, welcome to this Forum of European Philosophy panel on Europe's unemployment, part of the uh, European Questions Turkish Angle series, which we produce in collaboration with the LSE Chair of Turkish Studies. I'm Simon Vendilling, and I'm the Director of the Forum of European Philosophy, and I'm delighted to welcome three guests who are in a much better position than I am to talk about today's theme. However, as chair, I get the opportunity at the start to say why, on my own part, I think we should be talking about this, and as a philosopher, why I think we should be talking about this. And there will be no doubt that the points I make now will not be taken up by any of the panellists, and so I'll give you this wonderful introduction after which they'll talk about something else. But uh, in my own view that there are four reasons why we might talk about Europe's unemployment today. The first is a very simple fact, and that concerns rates of unemployment in Europe, and the fact that the percentage of the working population who cannot get work in European countries within the European Union, for example, is growing, and that this is a serious social question in a time of economic downturn and austerity and so on. The second reason is what I call concerns today with the meaning of unemployment. And this is about the relationship between work and non-work. There was an old model, which, which we're very familiar, where work for the vast majority of people meant some sort of gainful employment, often in factories or in big industrial centres, where there was going through the factory gates, as it were, into a place of occupation, a place of work, a labour place. And other people who didn't, as it were, have the ticket to get in at that point. And they were at the gates and they were queuing in lines and gold queues and so on in order to attempt to find work. And it seemed on that model that there was a very clear distinction between what it meant to be in work and the kind of value that that had for people's lives and what not being in work meant, what it meant to be unemployed. And we have very clear images of these things. Today, however, in a very different time, we have issues around teleworking, distance working, short contracts, periods in time where you're not at work, and those periods of time might even be in the same day, that you, as it were, within, within a day you could be at work and not at work. So the whole sort of normative structure of the relationship between work and non-work, work and unemployment is transforming in our time. The, the, the model of a sort of core working group with peripheral areas of rather diverse kinds of employment is shifting. And that core area of the factory gate, as it were, of it working in that place, that seems to be breaking down in our time. And this relates to a third point that I would mention, which is uh, what we might call cultures of unemployment or of non-work. In the early part of the 20th century, there would have been a sort of dream, a, a, a sort of emancipatory dream of um, a, a world without work, where machines would more and more take over the tasks of manual labour for us all, and there'd be a kind of end of work, and we'd all be unemployed, but gloriously unemployed, because um, machines were doing it all for us, and we would be kept well on uh, some sort of state function in which, um, in which we simply had leisure time. And so unemployment, as it were, would shift from something one wanted to get out of to something that one would want to get into. On the other hand, the reality today is that for many people, there's not enough work. 
who need work and there's not enough work, millions of people all over the world, millions of people in Europe for whom there's not enough work, and on the other hand, people in work for whom there's too much work, no end to work. And so you have this incredible discrepancy between a kind of modern fantasy of, a, of an end of work and a modern reality of too much work or not enough work. And fourthly, probably related to that uh, new reality, is what one might call policy. Thinking through policy on unemployment. <coughs> We're very used now to issues around the idea of a welfare state system of support, of benefits for people who are unemployed. And there are lots of difficult questions that we've got to ask ourselves when we're thinking through uh, how we're going to support people in our communities who are without work. Who gets it? For how long do they get support? And at what level do they get support? All of these very difficult questions on policy, on unemployment. In a welfare state system, we've got to remember, of course, that the welfare state system um, is a relatively <coughs> new formation, and that in Europe in the past there were many different ways in which communities struggled and supported uh, unemployed people amongst them. In Britain, for example, there were the poor laws in the, in the UK, where there were local taxations to help those who live in your, your immediate community, your parish, for those without work. So that, that was very often a, 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 a primarily agrarian society, and so it would be uh, people who were, whose labour um, opportunities were seasonal and so on. And, and as, as Europe industrialised, problems of not being in work were almost impossible to coordinate in small communities or in, in urban communities where you could have mass, great masses of unemployment and, and concentrations of unemployment in particular parishes. And there's no way you could have coordinated a parish level response to unemployment. So, four reasons there why we might think about unemployment. I'm delighted to welcome here today three people who, as I say, will not touch on the themes that I've just mentioned and uh, can take it up absolutely in their own way. Uh, we have at the far end Luke Bovens, who's a professor of philosophy here at the LSE. And I'm particularly grateful to him because he had to step in at rather short notice with the cancellation of a, of a, a previously invited speaker. So thank you, Luke. And uh, in the middle, Marco Simoni, who's my colleague, in fact, in the European Institute, who's a political economist. And then at this end, uh, Insan Tunali, who's the Associate Professor of Economics at Koch University in Istanbul. And uh, so we've got a philosopher, a political economist, and an economist. And I think that will give us a fair spread of views on, uh, on, on our topic for tonight. Each person will be given um, some time to speak without <coughs> interruption. Uh, they can deviate and repeat as they please. Uh, but um, uh, they'll, I, I'm hoping we'll give them about 10 to 12 minutes, 15 minutes maximum uh, to make their opening remarks. And then we'll have uh, a little bit where I might coordinate a bit of discussion between them, ask some questions myself, and then we'll throw it open to you for questions in, in, in turn. Um, but we're going to have, uh, first of all, um, how do I get this? We're going to have Luke Bowman. And uh, he's going to get his slides up. I'm going to his slide master. So down the button when requested. <laughs> Terrific. Th thank you. 
thank you, Simon. Um, well, I'm going to contradict you, actually, um, because I am going to take up your, your fourth point. Um, so let's move on to the, to the second slide here. Uh, so here's what, what, I, what I got interested in. So there is, there is this idea that, you know, in a liberal society, the question is, what, what do we owe to each other? And, and in particular <coughs> here, of course, we think about what is it that we owe to the, to the unemployed, right? And now, I think that there are two issues that are very much related. And the first issue is, so what are the grounds for owing something to the unemployed? That's one issue. And, and then the other issue is, you know, well, what sort of thing, what sort of assistance do we owe to the unemployed, right? And that, I think, you know, touches on, on Simon's fourth point. And these things are very much, um, these things are very much related. Now, here is a, a very, very, you know, broad strokes picture, all right? And I'm following here Klaassen, Quist, and, and Orskot in a, in a book called Nordic Welfare States. And the idea is that there is three different grounds for saying that we owe things to the unemployed. Now, the first ground is something like, well, people have paid into the social security system. There's a certain merit that comes from that, from having participated in the labor market. And, and it's kind of like an insurance scheme in which they've participated. So now they're unemployed and we owe them assistance. So that's one story. The second story is saying, well, look, you know, these people are, are out of money, all right? They're needy. They have to provide for their subsistence. Certainly we owe something to the needy in a liberal state. That's the second story. And the third story is something like, look, if we want to run a democratic society, we can't have very wide levels of inequality. And so we can't have people drop below a certain threshold because otherwise that would be a violation of democratic citizenship. And so now with very broad strokes, you could say that the continental model is the insurance model, the needs model is the UK, and the equality democratic citizenship model is the Nordic countries. But this is, you know, extremely broad and just a matter of a bit of emphasis, okay? Now, when it comes to, to looking at, at, at how these various unemployment assistance schemes are being designed, it makes a difference which kind of justification you invoke. For instance, if you say, well, you know, I stand for an insurance model, then it's going to be very important whether you've been attached to the labor market in determining whether you really have access to these unemployment benefits. All right? So that's what goes in, in the top, um, top left bo uh, box there. On the other hand, if you think about, you know, its needs, its subsistence, that's really what's important, then typically what you're going to have is something of a more universal access. It's not so much attachment to the, um, to the labor market that gives you access, all right? But at the same time, the level of the benefits will be a lot lower, and there will be no relationship between your benefits or only minimal relationship between your benefits and your previous earnings. So that goes in the box underneath needs and level there. And then the third issue is this issue of obligations. Okay, so, you know, the question is, you know, if you are receiving assistance in the way of unemployment benefits, right, and you get job offers, you know, what kind of reasons can you invoke to turn down these job offers, 
all right? And now the issue is that in the Nordic countries, the Nordic countries were always pioneers of back-to-work schemes, all right? And, and so that's, I think, important to see that there is just this high mobility requirements um, that come in. And this really brings us to the next slide. So, you know, we say that we, we owe something to people who are unable to find work. But of course, it's not just inability to find work. I mean, there's work laying around, but it's inability to find suitable work. And then the question is, and I think this is a big philosophical question, you know, what constitutes suitable work, right? Because, of course, you could say, well, look, you know, here is a job, um, you know, washing windows in, 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 in skyscrapers. And you say, oh, God, I can't do this. I mean, you know, I've got vertigo. This is hugely dangerous and so on, right? This is not suitable work, okay? Well, that's fair enough. I think when you can invoke things like this work is illegal, it's immoral, it's not in line with my religion, it's undignified, it's dangerous, it's unhealthy, we accept that. That's not suitable work. And people who want to do that are often very highly remunerated for doing these kinds of things, all right? But things get a little bit tricky. I remember when I was a kid, there was this, this bad joke around, and, and it went like this. Um, so there's this job seeker who comes into the, into the office, and you know, the caseworker is looking through his papers, and he says, you know, you put he down here as your occupation that you are an elephant hunter in the new, in the new forest, right? And he says, yeah, that's right. He says, yeah, but says the caseworker, there are no elephants in the new forest. He says, that's exactly why I'm here, right? <laughs> so it's, you know, this is sort of, there's a serious point here because, you know, it's this question of occupational mobility, right? That is that, can you say, no, I refuse this work. I want to continue receiving assistance because that work is outside of my area of expertise. It's not what I studied for. It's not the, the area in which I have been working in the past. All right. So that's the issue of occupational mobility. Does that count? To what extent can you invoke this? Then there is the issue of geographical mobility. So yes, there is a job for you, but it, invokes go it involves going to the Hebrides. Do you need to do that? Or can you turn down that job and continue receiving assistance? Or yes, there is a job for you, but it's only half of what you used to make before, right? The wage mobility question. So these, I think, are very tricky questions. I mean, my general take on this is that, um, you know, sort of the default position is you got to be mobile, geographically, occupationally, as well as, you know, relative to your wages. But I think there's always a number of caveats that come with this. That is, if you say to somebody, you know, move to the other side of the country, and it's like, well, you know, I have an aging parent that I need to take care of. Well, that's, that's a good reason, all right? But the owners... Uh, the, the, the onus of proof is really on you to show that you are not mobile, right? And in the same way, I think when it comes to occupational mobility and wage mobility, it's important to have transitional periods, right? Because, I mean, for one thing, if you think about occupational mobility, if, if, if you don't give people to wade around a little bit before a suitable job in their area comes around, then why did society invest all this money into your, into your education, Right, so transitional periods, I think, are important. Anyway, let me move on to a different point, and uh, new slide, Maestro. <laughs> so, so here is my here is my nephew-in-law, and this is the Turkish angle. Okay? His name is Mustafa Kör, and he wrote a book in in, in Dutch. He, he lives in Flanders, um, named The Lambs, 
um, and he tells the story of his family. Um, it's a family that comes from a, a small uh, village in the neighborhood of Konya. And so, you know, they're discussing actually this issue of, of moving to, to Limburg in eastern Belgium. Okay, let me just read it to you. So, Zeki and my father Ahmed told their wives about the land that was dotted with windmills and rivers. This had become the talk of the town. This faraway land was a place that had so much fertile soil, just laying there and waiting for manpower to come and till the soil. The inhabitants of this land were screaming out loud since they were buried under the work. There was so much work that they could not do it by themselves. They were calling for migrant labor to join them under their blissful yoke. Okay. Now, of course, the reality was that um, in eastern Limburg, there are coal mines, and there has always been historically high levels of unemployment. All right. So, you know, it's not quite, you know, the picture that, that, that his father was, you know, putting forward here. So, now, anyway, I think that at this point, there is precisely this kind of issue on the table. So very poignantly in, in the Netherlands. Let's go to the next slide. Um, so the Netherlands actually has 500,000 people who are unemployed and um, there is a lot of need to work in the greenhouses in, in horticulture, right? Now, Bulgarians and Romanians still need a visa. It depends from one country to another, but individual countries in the European Union can say until January 1st, 19, uh, 2014, okay? They can say that uh, we don't let Bulgarians and Romanians in unless they have a visa, right? Now, there, there is Hans Kamp, who is the who is the, the Minister of Social Affairs in, in, in the Netherlands, and, and he's been screaming out for the last year that he doesn't want to give any visas to Bulgarians and Romanians to come and work in the greenhouses in horticulture um, because of the fact that they have 500,000 people who are unemployed, right? And, and so the question is, you know, is that a reasonable thing to do or not? Or should we give visas to Bulgarians and Romanians and say, well, you know, these Dutch... Um, unemployed people, they don't want to work in those greenhouses, right? You know, just give them their unemployment benefits. They don't want to do manual labor in the greenhouses. Let the Bulgarians and the Romanians come. Now, of course, you know, one thing that you could say is, um, well, what's the problem with that? I mean, you know, this is Pareto Superior. Everybody is better off if you give them visas, all right? The unemployed can keep on being unemployed and don't have to do manual labor in the greenhouses. And the remains in the Bulgarians, you know, get work and they send remittances home. And the horticulturists are screaming out loud to get the Bulgarians and the Romanians because the Dutch have no clue of what to do in those greenhouses. <laughs> all right. So that's sort of the story. Now, on the other hand, I do find there's something that there's something problematic about that. And you know, Hans Kamp is actually sort of underlining the fact that. The, the working conditions for these people are terrible. I mean, wages are low, um, you know, they're sleeping in a the barn, they're doing 12-hour shifts, and so on, right? And, but secondly, I think that there is also another problem, and that is the issue that, you know, why is it the case that this does not qualify as suitable work for the Dutch unemployed, right? Now, I think that the response to that is something like, you know, well, they don't find it <coughs> dignified work, but it's different from the dignified that I was talking about before. I mean, it's sort of, it's below, it's work that's below their dignity, all right? Now, that I find problematic because at the same time, other people are coming over doing that kind of work, 
And through social security payments, they provide in the assistance to the unemployed. And I, I just, you know, just find that there's something slightly problematic about that. And it's sort of a, a sense of second class citizenship that is being reinforced here. Um, and uh, one way that um, Henk Kohl, who was a, um, an elderman in Den Haag, tried to get around this was he said, well, look, if you get four Romanians and Bulgarians in horticulture, you have to employ one Dutch person who is unemployed. Okay? And the idea is that you know, the Dutch have a voice here. right? So you're going to have to make the conditions of working in those greenhouses attractive. And that then will benefit the migrant labor as well. But he didn't get anywhere with that proposal. <laughs> it sounds attractive, but he didn't get anywhere. Okay, I'm going to leave it to that. Okay, thanks, Luke. Right, and we'll move straight on then to uh, um, uh, Marcus Simone. Uh, you have a similar amount of time, Marcus. Yes. About 10 minutes. And I'll have to um, call you wrong for the second time because I'm going to talk about the first couple of points that you raised <laughs> in your introduction. Um, I'll try to sort of discuss the importance of unemployment, which is a concept that has been used um, every day probably in the media many times and by people like me uh, almost every day in their professional life as researchers. So I'll try to elaborate, um, taking these occasions on a talk on European questions on what is unemployment and why does it matter and does it matter at all. Um, starting from a few numbers, so today unemployment in Britain is about 8.4% and in Turkey is about 9.3% and that's not a share of working age population as um, Simon was suggesting earlier, but <laughs> is the share of the labor force that is unemployed. So how does it work? How do we know who is unemployed or not? This is maybe something that, that everybody is familiar with. So they, in the statistical office, they decide, they pick up a sample of the population and then they phone them up or they visit them in their houses and they ask them, do you have a job? No. But that's not enough. Then the second question is, are you looking for a job? And then if they answer no, then they're not unemployed. If they answer yes, then they are unemployed. So the unemployed are all those people who are looking for a job, in fact. We could call them job seekers. It would be exactly the same thing we're talking about. So this excludes a lot of people, excludes those who are not working because they chose not to work, because maybe they are taking care of somebody or taking care of their families. That excludes also those who don't look for a job because they are maybe sad or depressed or they just are hopeless. They, they're not doing anything. That excludes the homeless people, for example. So, in essence, then, unemployment is a very imperfect measure of two different phenomena that are quite distinct. On one side, it's an imperfect measure of unhappiness. So, people who are looking for a job, they want to have a job. So, they have some sort of frustration in their lives, which is considered to be major and important. Um, on the other side, is a measure of efficiency, of economic efficiency of that specific country at that time because unemployment, or rather the reverse, employment, is one of the key factors for production in any sector. You, without labor you can't do anything, right? You can have as much capital as you want or as much land as you want, but you need at least some labor. Um, so it is imperfect because it excludes many, as I was arguing earlier. Um, it is imperfect because it's not completely comparable across countries. So we're not really sure that that 
8.4 refer to Britain and that 9.3 refer to Turkey are exactly the same thing because the reason why one might look for a job or not might depend on the family values and the family structure in which or societal structure in which the thing, that person is living so for example um, a British person might look for a job in under conditions in which a Turkish person is not looking for a job and vice versa uh, in the end it's about also a clear definition of what is a job so when that person asks the first question do you have a job the answer might be no under the same condition in which in a different country the answer might be yes and let me give you a simple example maybe if you are in Turkey or in southern Italy for what matters and you're working part-time for your uncle who has a mechanical workshop and you're asked by an official state agent of the statistical office do you have a job you probably answer is no um, whereas if you work in McDonald's in, in, in London and you have basically the same working arrangement which sums up to nothing with your employer um, your answer is yes I do have a job I go every day for two hours to make up sandwiches in my McDonald's um, despite this imperfection this is a very useful indicator precisely because it combines so many different aspects right it combines the personal aspects of individual um, uh, frustration and the temperature of it it's like a, a thermometer that takes the temperature of the economy like how is the economy today let's measure it with the with the with the thermometer of unemployment if it's too high there might be some problems and in this second aspect the temperature of the economy it is much more comparable because definitely if you have you know 40 degrees of temperature is definitely you're not well right so maybe it doesn't if you don't have any temperature maybe you're unwell as well but it, definitely you will be you have a problem if that temperature is too high it more or less is the same for unemployment with the economy of any given country but more precisely right so there are a lot of studies in, in so, social psychology showing how much unemployment is a cause for concern for individuals so somebody who is unemployed and is looking for a job stops doing everything stops taking care of himself or herself stops doing normal chores inside their own household um, it generates a sense of exclusion from society and a sense of frustration that is much stronger than simply the income provision although the provision of income is also another component that is very important it generates in it a strong sense of inequality and detachment um, at 360 degrees for that specific individual um, and this is one side one side of the importance of unemployment well when this gets summed up in what is can be considered as you know the temperature of the of the economy how is the economy feeling today um, this had this this was and has been in certain moment of European history and world history an incredible driver of social uh, of social consequences and political consequences mostly in between the two wars um, after the 29 after the crisis of 29 the Great Depression that that followed um, when unemployment became something that had enormous consequences for the ability of populisms to um, 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 use it and, and because the tension rising from inequality fed and fueled populism in many uh, developed countries that were actually otherwise going towards 
path of democracy. They were looking like countries that were increasingly being democratic, where suffrage were, was being extended year by year, and then this mass unemployment happened, and then the, the, the history turned in different directions. So that is why, again, employment is so important. Um, highlighting different types of problems that have to do with the efficiency of the economy and the level of inequality that in a society that is present in a society in any given time. Now, so said, what is really interesting to me um, of this reflection is the fact that sh important shift has occurred, have occurred in the last, say, 20 years, and they're still visible very much, especially right now after the economic crisis still um, pressing on many European economies. So to start with, a number of relevant important countries like Germany, France, Italy, Spain, had persistently high level of unemployment since the early, late 70s, early 80s, up to throughout the 90s, um, which fueled new inequalities. So high unemployment doesn't mean only that richer are richer and the poor are poorest, et cetera, et cetera, but that inequalities might be between different regions of a single country or between different generations within the same country. But this issue, unemployment, lost any political traction. There is no political entrepreneur or political leader we can think about that made on his own or her own career based on a fight of, against unemployment. In a very similar manner, inequality has risen sharply in the last 20 years, not everywhere, but in countries like the UK, the US, and uh, other continental European countries, again, Italy, Spain, Greece have a very high level, increased level of inequality, whereas other countries didn't increase inequality overall as much. But we don't see, again, any political traction to the issue of inequality. Nobody seems to matter. And a few politicians that try to build their career on uh, against inequality essentially failed. They didn't make any progress. Um, again, today, 8.4% uh, of British labor force is unemployed, uh, almost 10% in Turkey. Yet, the issue is always raised by politicians in the terms of economic efficiency. This is a problem because the economy doesn't work. There's no narrative, uh, no political narrative that is trying to gain points by pointing the finger through the inequality that this generates, to the sense of exclusion that this generates, and, or, and to the sum of individual consequences that this high level, high level of unemployment actually has to the lives of millions of people, as someone was arguing at the beginning. So, to me, this brings to two conclusions. The first is that unemployment as a synthetic indicator of very different phenomena of social and economic nature is substantially no longer important. What is important is the economic aspects of it. What still has political traction is the link to overall growth and therefore could be easily substituted with other indicators. We could refer to economic growth or investment or consumption, any other, they all correlate, they all correlate very highly. So it doesn't really matter which one do we choose. But the second point is that the reason why unemployment and inequality, even being so important as empirical phenomena, lost its political traction is largely unexplored. And I'm not sure if this is a question only for political scientists or for political theorists or philosophers. I think that from different angles this question could be tackled usefully. Um, there is a, a pretty much established 
um, um, stream of the literature in political economy showing how policy priority has shifted from the three decades after the Second World War to a second period that can more or less started at the beginning of the 80s from a focus on full employment to a focus on full of low inflation. So that early on politicians would focus on avoiding high unemployment at any cost and later on they would focus on avoiding high inflation at any cost. But it, there is very little to my knowledge that tried to ask the question of why was that politically feasible to keep high unemployment for such long time in so many countries because clearly there was no mass political consequence of this, no political entrepreneurs could, that could exploit this, this change and this must say something on different balance of work and non-work or maybe the not the distribution of resources but the overall level of wealth that society have reached might have an, have an importance of this or the changed conception of works and work that individuals have in modern societies. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Marco, thank you, Marco. We're, we're going to move straight on then to Insan. If you, you have your opportunity to say your words. Very good. Thank you. Um, I'm supposed to provide the Turkish angle. That's that's very tough for me. I does that mean that I have to speak like a typical Turk? Uh, <laughs> what is a typical Turk? Um, how does a typical Turk? Uh, view the unemployment issue uh, in Europe. Uh, it's very tough. I, I, I'm not going to uh, try to pretend that I can answer the question uh, in that fashion, but let me try to provide the Turkish angle by giving you a little bit of background. Um, Marco, of course, talked about the measurement issue, uh, but what I'm going to say perhaps will put it in a different perspective. Uh, he already mentioned that the unemployment rate in Turkey is, is about 9%. Um, this, during this decade, it has been uh, somewhere between 10 and 15% uh, throughout the, uh, the period. But the employment rate has never gone above 50%. Now, unemployment rate measures the share of job seekers among those who are in the labor force. Uh, while as employment rate measures the uh, number of employed relative to uh, people of working age. So these are not immediately comparable numbers. But when you have an employment rate of 50%, that says actually about 50, roughly, uh, and then the unemployment rate, that says about half the people in the population are actually participating, you know, looking for work or, um, or, or working. So uh, basically, you've got half the population who are neither, right? They're not gainfully employed, and they're not even looking for work. So when you put it in that fashion, this 9% doesn't mean much, right? It's surely not a number that you can compare with the 85 or 8.4% of uh, the UK, where the participation rate, I surmise, is 75% or something like that, right? Um, so we've got joblessness, uh, what uh, Simon referred to as not having work. Is, is that what we mean? Or do we really mean unemployment, or the people who we actually count as uh, unemployed? Uh, this clearly is uh, part of the uh, issue here. Why? Because uh, to be counted as unemployed, you have to do something. And to do something, 
meaning to look for work, um, you have to have some hope of finding work. Um, and um, in a lot of periods, uh, people um, perhaps lose that hope, or some members of society probably never have had that hope, given um, their endowments, their, their human capital, and uh, what the market is, is, is looking for. Um, maybe another way of looking at it is to, to ask, uh, when you have an employment rate of 50%, is, it just, is this just measuring lack of jobs? meaning lack of capital? Um, is it measuring lack of skill, meaning lack of human capital? Or is it reflecting preferences? Uh, it was touched upon uh, by the previous speakers that there could be some voluntary aspect to, uh, to unemployment. And maybe in in country like Turkey, you've got sun and beaches, some ripe peaches hanging from the tree, ready for picking, and there is no need for modern riches. Uh, sun and beaches and ripe peaches are fine. Uh, so you clearly have to bring in the issue of uh, preferences uh, as well. But as, as we know, issue of preferences is a very um, deep issue, uh, and we economists like to sort of throw it away. You know, we don't really uh, we, we make some assumptions about how they might enter the decision-making uh, process, but then we, we just let them be. And we try to look at outcomes, and then with the, by manipulating um, the incentives that we provide to people, we uh, hope to manipulate outcomes without really uh, asking people about their preferences and, 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 and whatnot. Now, how does that tie in with uh, the issue of uh, unemployment in Europe? Well, uh, it's going to be very confusing for somebody in, in looking at uh, European unemployment um, uh, from, from Turkey. Uh, a lot of um, questions are going to arise. But first of all, uh, there will be questions of the type that um, uh, Luke uh, mentioned. Uh, I'm willing to do those jobs. Uh, let me in and uh, I'll do it. Uh, why don't you uh, let me in uh, type of uh, question um, is, is, is surely uh, one of them. Um, another one is um, European countries are very generous uh, in terms of the, the welfare spending. Uh, so perhaps one reason why unemployment is high in Europe is because you can get paid, you can get benefits while you're unemployed by getting counted as, as unemployed. Now this is something very new in Turkey, uh, getting benefits when you're um, unemployed, and that's only possible if you've actually paid something into the system. Uh, so uh, well, think about all the youth. Youth clearly have no record of uh, employment. So uh, a lot of these systems uh, typically uh, exclude the uh, youth if you uh, make benefits proportional to uh, some uh, payments in the past. Now, looking at it with a little bit of perspective, um, 
uh, in terms of time, until mid-1980s, the unemployed in Turkey weren't even a statistic. There were no unemployment surveys. Uh, they were not counted the way we usually count them. Does that mean that there was no unemployment in Turkey at the time? Of course not. There was unemployment. We started counting it in a particular way. And, uh, of course, as uh, was mentioned uh, earlier, societies had ways of coping with these issues. But what um, made it possible was the fact that these were smaller communities. So the mutual obligations that people uh, have to one another could be controlled by the elderly, by the equivalent of the church, uh, by the local uh, leadership, uh, whatever. And, you know, what went round came round. So it was a, it was a good idea to, to participate in this system. But, of course, as the, the community became bigger, uh, I mean, now imagine the European Union as your community. Uh, you just cannot expect these mutual obligations to uh, fulfill the uh, role that they did in the earlier society in, in, in any meaningful way. And that's why we have all these questions. That's why we have these critiques uh, of um, the welfare system and whether or not uh, the unemployed um, deserve uh, anything. Um, now, let me uh, add one more uh, dimension to this. Um, the uh, the Belgians' bad job is clearly the Turks' good job. So we have uh, differences of opinion. The Turk is willing to take the job that the Belgian is not uh, willing to do. But then, if the working conditions are responsible for it, or if low wages are responsible for it, and the job has to be done, why do wages not rise? Right? As an economist, we typically think that there will be some sort of adjustment. Why do the working conditions not change, right? I mean, if you can't, uh, so, so this, if, if this is really the, the way things are, then there clearly is some sort of market failure, and that alone is reason for the government to step in. Um, but it is probably true that economists' understanding is, is usually very narrow, so uh, there truly are jobs that are considered um, uh, not wanted anymore, um, the dignity of the, the perhaps even the uh, poorest person in, in a particular society may not uh, be um, uh, agreeable to, to taking a certain job. You know, after all, it seems like dignity is a function of standard of living. The, the richer you get, the more dignified you become and, and refuse to do uh, some things. But there's always going to be a pecking order in this, right? Uh, just as the Turk is willing to do uh, the job of the Belgian in, um, in Limburg, you can go to a construction site in Turkey and uh, find that there's a Kurd who is willing to do the job of the Turk. So um, you, I do not think that you can uh, look at uh, these things and, and try to uh, adhere to some pretext of equality that if it's a job which is bad for this person, it should also be considered a job for another person. It's not for us to make that judgment. People know the conditions they live in. Uh, they uh, have a full understanding of what they're getting into. 
and if it's going to make everybody better off, I think um, these kinds of things should be done. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that's what immigration is all about. Uh, but of course, um, there are other issues um, which uh, stand in the way. So let me stop there and um, see how it goes. Okay, thank you very much. Now, we have a little bit of time here where I'm going to uh, take advantage of the fact that um, uh, my colleague Marco corrected me for my ignorance, which he did quite properly uh, in terms of thinking about un unemployment as a percentage of labour force rather than what? What, 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 did, what did I say? You talk about the, the working, working population. population right. I'm so sorry to do that. Now, so let me return the favour. Well, now, I'm not asking you necessarily to speak in your own name, but uh, in terms of, a, uh, of an approach that belongs to political economy quite widely uh, today, which is sometimes called varieties of capitalism. I want to go back, if we can, to Luke's first slide, where he presented um, distinct types that were connected with a continental model, a UK model, and a Nordic model. Now, uh, th that doesn't map exactly onto what in your area is called the the, the types of quite varieties close. of capitalism, but it is quite close. quite close. And just before we go on, I just wondered if you could say uh, uh, what are the types that are normally discussed in varieties of capitalism when you're looking at Europe, and then how, uh, if, if you were doing this very briefly, how you would describe the forms of uh, unemployment benefits and, and systems that you have in, modelled in each type. Yeah. So we'll start with that, and then I've got another question for the other two, picking up on that. Professor, could I just ask, just for clarification from that Turkish colleague, um, it might help me frame the question that I've got in my mind. Is, when we've talked about 50% employment in Turkey, was he talking about cross-genders? Or were we talking about cross-genders? Because it's the cultural difference, so I just wonder. Yeah. Okay, good. Right, Marco, so varieties of capital. Yeah, the varieties of capitalism is one of the mainstream theories <coughs> in political economy right now. And what it does with respect to the way countries treat unemployed is not unemployed people. It's not differentiating on the basis of the philosophical underpinnings of how unemployed people get supported. Rather, they find, well, they, the, the VOC theory finds a matching correspondence between the way economic production happens in, e in, a, in each and every country and the way welfare institutions, including unemployment benefits, uh, and are organized. <clears throat> so, for example, in a country like the UK, that in the model uh, designed by the varieties of capitalism theory, it's a liberal market economy where all the factors of production are extremely flexible and mobile. Um, skills of individuals are essentially organized in a general um, forms, meaning individuals are endowed with general skills through formal education processes organized by the state or by private institutions but not by private firms or private companies. As a consequence, these general skills require um, a uniform method of insurance that covers more or less everybody at the same 
minimal level so that then uh, one could support moment of intermittent employment between one job and the next job which might occur in quite different sectors. In different countries instead employment benefits are very much linked to in an insurance model to their previous job because um, these models are based not on general skills but on skills that are more specific to the industry or the sectors with some differences between industry and sectors that uh, explain a difference between continent and Nordic countries but it's, this is kind of a subtlety um, <coughs> meaning these people need a higher level of protection in, in monetary terms because they can only work in a limited am amount of companies for which they are trained uh, because their level of skills are very specific so rather than having a philosophical distinction on why you have different forms of protection for unemployment you have a, a distinction that is based on the economic structure of so different might have, countries. For example, as you said, the liberal market economy model for the UK, and that for you is going to explain the kind of system of benefits that's going you're going to find in that kind of type of economy. Exactly. You have a, a because coordinated market economy yeah, somewhere like they, they actually get distinguished in two different types of coordinated that are based on industry and those that are based on sectors. <laughs> which is Germany, different, for example, yeah. where it's very important that they're, if they're making high quality yeah. cars, then they need to have very special. But everything training. is less flexible. Yeah. But because everything is less flexible, the quality of innovation happens on different types of things. So here you have excellence in research and pharmaceutical are very important and you have startups in, 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 in cutting-edge technologies. In, the, in, the, in Germany you would have cars that are the best cars and washing machines are the best washing machines, but there is, they've been washing machines for about 100 years or something, right? So it's not, nothing very new, it's always a washing machine. So, but to, to improve those kind of goods, you need incremental innovation, you need long-term relationship and less flexibility. And hence also a certain kind of unemployment benefit Exactly. Structure. Okay, so, so with the varieties of capitalism model, you're not looking at as it were, a way of thinking about what it means to be unemployed, but a way of structuring a political economy which devolves, as it were, into these differential forms of uh, unemployment benefits. Okay, good. Thank you. Now, um, so to go one step further inside, if I could invite you to say, do you think that uh, Turkey fits into any of these kinds of economic structures where the, whatever benefit structures you do have, in Turkey sort of fit into the particularities of the type of economy that Turkey has? And if so, what sort of economy is it? How would you describe it? Well, Turkish economy is, uh, I guess, closer to being closer to the liberal model, at least in the last decade. Um, and then prior to that, it probably, in the 70s, it was probably more, much more a, a coordinated model. Uh, so maybe that's something worth keeping in mind. States do evolve. The nature of capitalism uh, evolves uh, as well, but unemployment remains uh, as, a, as a question. Um, one thing I didn't mention in, in my opening remarks is that uh, unemployment insurance scheme did arrive in Turkey in, in 2002 uh, after a, a big uh, crisis in, in uh, late 2000 and, and early, uh, early 2001. But uh, as um, the most recent global crisis, the way it, it impacted Turkey uh, demonstrated, um, typically one out of 10 or one out of eight unemployed individual actually has uh, insurance. 
So if, if, if everybody had insurance, of course, unemployment rate in Turkey would have been much higher, right? People would have gone and, and you know, tried to uh, claim unemployment. But others uh, who do not have this insurance um, give, gave up uh, search uh, because they um, didn't hope, have the hope to uh, find it, and, and um, therefore they did not show up uh, in the uh, statistics. So I think it's surely the model of the state uh, is important because that's a perception of, of the individual embedded in it and, and what the state uh, owes or the society owes to the individual. Um, and it probably shows up in the, in the nature of the, uh, the schemes that are um, in, in place um, uh, in the form of the welfare state that, uh, that we see. I don't know if that answered your question no, really uh, or not, but... Particularly that last point about the relationship between a model of the state and the way in which we begin to think about what we owe each other. And this takes us back to where Luke began, is thinking about benefits in terms of what we owe people in our communities who, who like work. And I'm really good talking about now, Luke, because, because I'm thinking about... Uh, let's think the other way around. Marco said, well, you know, if you have a state like this, then it's going to bubble up with this kind of insurance scheme or that kind of uh, uh, benefit system. If you were the full king, <coughs> and you could now redesign the state so that it had the right kind of benefit system so that it, as it were, met various moral ethical criteria, but how would you think that, uh, as it were, in order to conform to norms of what we owe each other that you think are particularly important for us as human beings or as moral creatures, what, what here? If you're looking at these models that you're looking at here, or any others that you know have been mentioned, uh, are there ones where you think these make, as it were, the strongest claim on our attention as a as a rational creature or as moral beings, so that we should think about how we organise ourselves politically on the basis of that? And that, I mean, that's obviously a completely ridiculous Platonic question to ask you as a philosopher king. But uh, you know, how would you? If you were coming from the point of view of morality rather than the point of view of economy, how would you want to begin to reorganize ourselves? Yeah, well, that's grand, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an understudy here, all right? <laughs> um, well, let me, let me think about, about Marco's point here, right? Because, I mean, it seems to me that... Um, you really think about these exogenous factors, right? I mean, it's the idea that, well, in one society, it just happened to be the case that the skills were more generalized, and maybe that's due to the education system, but it may also be just sort of an accidental fact, just because that's the kind of production that is, you know, typical for that society. But in the other society, engineers and so on, right, um, the, the, the skills are much more specific, and maybe it has something to do with the education system, but it may also just be because of the kind of things that they do, right? I mean, that's the sort of, I mean, that, that would be UK versus continent, right? Well, I mean, very broad strokes. Yeah, I mean, very broad strokes would be UK versus continent, but the point is, well, and not only UK, UK, Ireland, uh, mm -hmm. the US but the origin of this is not random or is not exogenous it's actually completely endogenous like the argument traces back 
to the second industrial revolution. So the moment in which a key change uh, happened in the modes of production and, in cer and, and the, what certain countries were producing, which differed at that time and was different because of certain different endowments, of course, of the territories of the land. And the different manners in which employers and labor would organize themselves in these different countries. So where labor and capital, uh, so in, in, in industrialists and trade unionists, had uh, the need of cooperation to sustain certain type of production, then a more coordinated type of economy would emerge, where conflict was stronger, also because factories were more far one another, and employers had less need of cooperating with one another, and unions were more militant for internal uh, organizational features than a more liberal model would, 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 would emerge. And therefore, then the system of welfare protection and the word developed throughout the decades, so it was not something that you know came up all at the same time at the, uh, after the second industrial revolution, would be compatible with this different system of production. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that would explain why even after 20 years of 30 years of globalization, still find persistent divergence in the way economies are organized. We don't witness any homogenization or Americanization of the world economy. Mm -hmm. Each country still has strong specificity. Germany is now one of the best performing economies on a completely different model than the US or the UK. Um, so it's not actually exogenous, it's actually completely endogenous. Mm -hmm. um, and of course this view would also be relatively skeptical in attributing different um, idea, ideational underpinning of choices. So it's not about how the British people consider the unemployed, but it's about what the British system of production needs to, to work. Right, 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 yeah. One, one, yeah. one other way of picking up yeah. the, the uh, issue of what a philosopher might say, you could, you could refer to people like John Rawls, who, in, who devised something like a veil of ignorance. And so, you know, when you go into the society, you don't know whether you're going to be employed or unemployed, whether you're going to be in a CME, an LME, or whatever. Uh, and, and, and so you, you can be invited imaginatively to think, well, what sort of society is it going to be that I'm going to enter there? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how should I think through uh, questions of what we owe each other in terms of unemployment? And I, actually, yeah. I do think that the scheme that you've put here, where you know, some people are arguing in terms of merit or needs or democratic citizenship and equality, these are absolutely crucial kinds of uh, values that people are going to bring to bear, as it were, behind the veil of ignorance yeah. to try to say how things might go beyond it. Yeah. Well, I, I see it really when you think about the, 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 the UK versus continent comparison, right? Yeah. Because there you could just say, you know, behind the veil of ignorance, I know sort of the basic facts of the society for which I am choosing general principles of justice, right? And if I know as one of these basic facts that we have a lot of specialization out there, right? Yeah. Then I'm going to put in, in place a different kind of scheme of protection, which will be much more related to the particular job that I'm doing and so on. Whereas it, if it's all sort of a flexible skill um, uh, set that I'm playing with, right? Then, then I might say, look, you know, as long as, as there's some little cushion, however low it is, to fall back on while I'm jumping to the next thing, right? That's what I would put in place. But, um, but it still sort of doesn't give me any kind of comfortable way of, of categorizing the, the, the Nordic countries where, you know, there is this 
the, the, this idea that you need to have a certain level of, of, of um, equality in order to run a democratic society, um, sense of inclusion, and so on. And, and, and that I can't, I, I, I can't quite get the political economy story going right. in order to explain yeah. that. Well, we might have to interrupt you at that point. Let me ask a quick oh, question. Yeah. E equality when? Um, at the beginning of the race or at the end of the race? Well, I think the story is that, you know, all the way through the race, we think about pushing people up so that nobody starts lagging behind too far. Okay? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, the hands are going up. They, they know it's their turn. So, uh, yes, please. Yeah. Well, um, uh, there was no mention of distinction between unpaid work and work. And unpaid work is what the females do, and the family runs shop and everything. And um, I, I think there is... Uh, when you're receiving that benefit that everyone is telling you you mustn't have, it's a difference between not going on the on the game and going on the game, really. Because what I see is, you know, if you're a, uh, a, a house person and you're looking after someone that is very ill, uh, how are you going to look after them if you have no money? So being, having a benefit involves having a choice. I think, um, and the, you know, People don't understand that um, some people are not rich. You know, they're not born rich. They have these things. They have families. They have to take care of. And um, to to be unpaid and to do all that, you can't go to work. This is very good. I mean, I mean, we we, we haven't touched at all on the idea of being neither working and paid or unemployed and receiving benefit, but working and unpaid huge structural mm -hmm. level of our societies. I don't know if any of you have. Mm -hmm. Well, I was, again, this is touching upon something I was incidentally mentioning about the level of distress that is linked to the condition of being an unemployed job seeker, so somebody who doesn't have a job but is spending, in theory, most of his day looking for a job, which is an activity that can last a few weeks, after which... <coughs> people start losing interest in anything that they do and it, it that explains free uh, like jobs done for free more than anything else and these include many different things one is work done for free in its in one's own household or in one's own neighborhood for example but it explains also phenomena which are quite widely spread now, especially in countries that are experiencing very high unemployment, like free stage, so free internships. So people that are young, but they go from one internship to the next for years without paying any, getting any salary. Recently, there was a polemic for discovermental measures in the UK with people going to Tesco, otherwise would have lost their unemployment benefit to stack shelves and so on. All these phenomena are linked to the fact that not having a job and looking for a job is it personally worse than any other social condition. And so you'd rather work for free than, than being that. Okay, good. Uh, yes. well, do, uh, Luke, do you want to come in or should we go yeah, on? Yeah, just on, on this particular point, I think that there is this issue of, you know, I'm being able to say, you know, I cannot find suitable work. Right, but, but the, the issue here is that nothing. I mean, if a person is taking care of an, an elderly parent, a number of children, and so on, right? Nothing is suitable work. Yeah, you can't yeah. do it. You can't do it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's why I was elected developer. I 
I looked after my parents for years, and because I could, I looked after the shop as well. I was getting paid, but I was on the door, so it was like I was, I was all over the place. I was working, <laughs> looked my hands, and I wasn't getting paid. You know, that's what it was. And and to do that, and a Turkish person, that's what happens to them. In Turkey, that's what happens. A girl or a family looks after family. And if you don't look after family, that's when you're out, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had all kinds of propositions from all kinds of men to do, you know, to leave home and go on the game or something. And, you know, for, if it wasn't for the benefits I was receiving, I could have, I could have very easily ended up doing something very wrong. Mm -hmm. you know? okay. Thank you. Thank you. I've got one there and then one here. I just wanted to go back to the measurement issue briefly because I thought it was quite interesting and how tricky it comes it could sometimes be because for example let's say you've got uh, unemployment going up yes and when you're doing the numbers you just uh, say well this could be that uh, the workforce has gone up as well because there is a perception that Absolutely. real wages have improved. Yeah. What part of the young workforce, in fact, have joined the workforce? Are those the young ones just out of school that need to join the workforce because head of families have lost their jobs? Or are the other young ones the ones that want to sort of have good jobs and there is a real improvement in real wages? So, and sometimes uh, measures, uh, unemployment measures can be used to sort of portray better rather controversial economic policies, for example, because you can write them in different ways, so it's paid in a way. Thank you. Thank you. Comment? This is a good contribution. I don't know if it's a question exactly. I mean, I, I can just re underline the combination of what um, I said with what was said before by, I remember your first name, Insan, so. on the fact that, of course, um, these measurement issues are, con are constant of the of unemployment. In fact, one of the measures that is best used now to indicate the health of the employment situation in a country is this, especially with regards to the youth, is this new measure, widely use of NEET or NEET. So people that are neither in education or in employment nor in training in the age of between 15 and 25, depending on who takes the measure, which is a very good measure of how bad the situation is, right? So then you have in countries like Italy, this number has doubled in the last three years. In countries, no, sorry, it was already high. Countries like Spain or Greece has doubled. Um, in countries like Italy was very high. In countries like the UK is relatively low, showing that even though unemployment might have gone up, then the situation is not as bad. So there is, of course, many more indicators that you need because you can have a surge in unemployment because you have an economic boom, because more people come into jobs. You have a drop in unemployment because there's a depression, because people just stop to look for a job. So, mm -hmm. absolutely. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, one here and then at the back there. So here first. Okay. Before I start to speak uh, about, I want to tell about myself. Uh, number one, I studied employment planning and policy at the Middlesex uh, University in 1990. And uh, exactly those topics that we were studying, which I'm speaking about 22 years ago. Uh, secondly, I worked as a race equality officer, as a women's equality officer at the council's number of years. And 
last 10 years, I was a career advisor, and I particularly developed a project, which was all 45s, and consistently worked on it with the H concern, and my company, which is called the Career uh, Prospects, was the biggest company at that point of time as a career uh, development company. So I'm in and out all those situations. In my voluntary capacity, I worked for the uh, European Forum of uh, Women, which I, I worked on the uh, second uh, action plan and the third action plan. Second action plan particularly tackled with the atypical work. So work is, uh, for me, a very particular uh, interest. Uh, I, at this point of time, I am uh, retired since uh, 2009. Uh, but still, I want to learn more. And when I look at the issue, uh, I think I'm sort of feeling that we are keeping the issue from the wrong end. Uh, I rather prefer to start from asking a question whether the capitalist mode of production is able to full employment, number one. Secondly, is capitalist mode of, mode of production can survive as uh, without uh, making the structural, uh, structure, making uh, variation uh, between the workers, like this is a migrant worker, this is a women's worker, this is a paid worker, this is an unpaid worker. Take them all, especially there are some part of the world that is not developed as Europe. Imagine they are developed and whether it is a system can survive. I mean, my question, I can reply myself, no, I think that's the nature of the system. So when we, when we look at the issue, uh, again, we need to come back to the uh, point where we are now with the capitalist mode of production. Okay, we're going to have to, have to, I think you've asked a good question. It's a, it's a question about yeah. how far everything we've been talking about yeah. is within a particular... Just, just one, uh, uh, well, very quickly, please. Because when, when I come to that, uh, I'm asking, I'm questioning about the situation. Uh, the system, the capitalist mode of production, lives on uh, there is surplus production. Uh, well, we can't we can't do the whole theory of value now. Actually. No, 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 but, but, no, 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 no okay, please. I, I want to come to one point, please. Right. And uh, the two, two type of which we used to do, the abstract and the uh, relative, by making the machines a whole uh, speedy, uh, was all right. But now is uh, more on the innovation. And that makes the whole labor structure is a very, very particular and very different. For example, uh, biscuits was very important for uh, for a lot number of years and still is. Uh, when we look at the differentiation in the wage wage structure, I think these are very important points that we need to take into construction. Uh, take into um, yeah, our analysis, because as well as this, there is a uh, fairly different uh, location problem as well, where the capital goes, where they settle down. For example, 
Uh, no, I can't hear the end of the sentence, so I'm going to have to stop you there, but that was very interesting, and I don't know if there's anything you want to pick up on particularly about particular modes of production, capitalist mode of production, and whether, as it were, the kinds of problems that we're dealing with here belong well, directly let, let within me, these Let models. me say um, something about that. I mean, if, um, I mean, it's true that we do see a lot of differentiation, right? Uh, but some of this differentiation we have to understand is actually people's uh, own wanting. I mean, sometimes it's, it's a good idea to have differentiation, to match uh, the conditions that you're in. Uh, and if anything, there has been some drive for, I mean, women, for example, have uh, benefited from more flexible um, forms of work so they could perhaps uh, cope with the type of uh, pressures that our, our friend was talking about, that uh, maybe balance, uh, having part-time work which is nearby or whatever. I mean, it's some of the flexibility is, is perhaps good. Um, so we can't just, you know, um, write it all off. And then talking about the mode of production, I mean, if we, um, if we take the Soviet model as, as, as an ex, as a, as a reflecting what socialism is about, of course that's very debatable, uh, we know that that perhaps approximated uh, the opposite case, right? Perhaps all employment was the same there to a large extent, right? People were paid, there were um, you know, women, men, they were treated equally and so on. Uh, but clearly that's not a model that uh, we uh, aspire uh, for either, right? I think and of course the reasons are different that that model couldn't deal with the fact that people are actually different uh, and people are different uh, people have different incentives uh, for work I mean some people are lazy some people are hard workers and uh, you know you just have to understand uh, these things and, and perhaps if you have a diversity uh, a system where there's diversity to absorb the diversity of the people, that's, that's probably good. So I, I wouldn't take the, all heterogeneity as, as uh, suggesting that, uh, the type of heterogeneity that we see in capitalism is suggesting that capitalism is, is bad. I think capitalism can be uh, called bad for other reasons, but I wouldn't think of this as, as one. Thank you very much, Sam. We've got a question here, then there, then here. So, yeah. Yes. <coughs> A little bit more about the Turkish angle, perhaps fairly generally, in the situation of we're talking about employment, jobs, and the social dimension that changes in Turkey, and there's been reference to uh, same issues, shall we say more broadly, in the European Union. And I think in questions of relations between Turkey and the European Union, are there any issues that one should be addressing and thinking about, I will very soon be going on a delegation actually to Turkey with colleagues from the European Union and uh, I, I'd like to know what advice you could give me that I should be asking, learning, trying to understand about perhaps different attitudes and, uh, and approaches. So I'd like to play a little bit more about the Turkish angle, attitudes uh, and, and what we should be thinking about. Thank you. I think Turkish attitudes are uh, very diverse. Uh, people who uh, have lived in Turkey and have not seen anything else are going to look at these issues very differently from people who have 
uh, been abroad, who worked abroad, who have gone back after working abroad. Uh, so I think you should go there with a very open mind that um, you're going to find all sorts of different voices uh, and hopefully some of these voices will be voices that you have not heard before and that's where you're going to um, perhaps learn something new but you'll also discover that a lot of the Turks that you meet are just like other people you've met before and so there's not a huge divide. Now of course there are issues that distinguish Turkey um, um, I may have, uh, the gentleman behind you, I may have answered your question earlier wrongly when you said cross-genders, I think you meant are there any differences in the employment ratios of women and men, perhaps? I was talking in totality as well. As yeah, this was the total, the 50% was the total, mm -hmm. and surely there's a huge gender gap. Um, employment rate of males is about you know, more than 70%, and for females it's, it's barely 30%. Now that says something, and that of course also um, is intimately related to what uh, this, this young lady uh, here said. Uh, women, yeah. this doesn't, this uh, women didn't, uh, I mean the, the fact that women, uh, only 30% of the women uh, work, uh, doesn't mean that they don't do any work. They do a lot of work. They we call that. That's right. We call it. We, lo we call it housework. We, uh, we we call it other things. They do childcare, elderly care, and of course, one reason why um, the rates go up uh, or have gone up in Western society is because. Uh, economies have found ways of providing these services uh, through the market uh, in some fashion, you know, child care delivery, uh, elderly care, and, and so on. And if you could afford it, you could use these services. You clearly couldn't, and, and, and the system uh, has to deal with that as well. And so the employment rate of uh, women uh, went up. Uh, and in Turkey, it will probably go up, as if Turkey keeps um, growing at the rate that it does. Some of these services will be marketized. Um, so let me let me stop there. And I think you know, coming back to your original question, um, uh, yeah, just go there with an open mind, and uh, you know, you might find that there are some people who are very different, and, and most of them will be very similar. I'm sorry. Just, just go with our mind not to have any. I, wonder, I was hoping to leave here with one, you know, a nice list of questions. Okay. <laughs> 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 more or less said, well, don't bother thinking about any questions. Just keep your mind open. I think open mind is the best strategy, <laughs> and let the questions arise as as people uh, start um, telling you about themselves, or what, and then how they view you and um, your role as a representative. Okay, go at the back. It knows there, there, and then you. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, to come back to the point um, the lady down there uh, addressed at length, um, uh, I didn't think it was really addressed by the speakers, largely, or I don't know. Um, the, the aspect of unemployment as a, as a structural and intrinsic part of the capitalist system, um, and not so much as an individual choice or case, but in other words, capitalism <coughs> I think needs unemployment in order to keep labor power uh, cheap and uh, flexible. And to what extent is that more fundamental um, issue than the question uh, in what way um, certain different uh, systems deal with this residue? Okay, that's
good. So again, it is a similar question, but it's about now unemployment as a structural feature of the system rather than something that we'll understand simply from the point of view of it. Luke? Well, I, I, I sort of am sympathetic to this, this objection that's now been, been raised twice. Um, I mean, when I, when I think about these issues, sometimes I do catch myself a bit in the mode of thinking about it of, you know, we're, we're on vacation together with a group of people and who is doing the dishes and who is slacking off and so on and so on. And what do we see, what do we say morally speaking about this little micro-society? Now let's carry it over to the macro-society. And maybe, you know, you're, you're quite right, both of you are quite right in saying that, uh, you know, you, you forget that, that capitalist society actually needs unemployment. And, and it's a very, very different situation to think about these moral issues as, you know, what do we owe to other, others, what kind of obligations do they have, and so on. You sort of take it out of your little micro-society and think you can transpose it, but you forget these structural structural issues. So, so I, I, I sort of admit to a bit of mea culpa here. So. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Ooh, we down here. Because yeah. I think I may have forgotten my question. But, uh, I, I, I was thinking that, you, did you say that it, the, the employment situation is not important polit politically? It came in when I came in very late. Did you say that it's not important for politicians? It was, it's less important. Less important. I mm -hmm. understand, well, in the States, everybody, for a few years, have been saying that the, the most important thing for elections is. It's the economy, stupid. Absolutely. And what does that mean to most people? It means the unemployment rate. Mm. And recently, uh, President Obama's uh, rating is, was going down, down, down from 68%, it was originally. Really going very low, and it started going back up again to maybe 51% because of the employment rate. People really look at that, but I think all of you are saying that. We can manipulate the employment statistics any way we want to, really. And yeah. they do, and often happens before elections happen. No, I don't think that's fair. I mean, I think <laughs> unemployment statistics are what they are in a particular country. They do measure something. Yeah. I mean, they. Is there any question? Is, I think, no, how can you improve them so there would be maybe even from the outside you could say this is what's really happening. These are the people who are really employed, and how can we improve this measurement because it seems to be. Uh, sort of, you know, but your question is also about the political relevance, Marco. You had yeah. did say you did seem to suggest there was a kind of fall away of, of salience of unemployment for political entrepreneurs. But I, I think there's a good point here, certainly in America, and I'm sure all over Europe today, with rising unemployment. I'm not. I'm not. Ar argue that. Policy. I didn't argue that the um, the. Um, my argument was that unemployment was important. Uh, driver of political saliency when it combined two aspects, one that related to unemployment as a measure of economic efficiency or inefficiency and unemployment as a symptom of social uh, condition of um, people that are deprived from their link to society and therefore feel more unequal. And then this has uh, repercussion on different dimensions of inequality and I was focusing on the fact that employment has kept meaning only on the former part okay. so as an indicator of economic um, health and in that respect yes it matters and statistically proven that no American president has been re-elected under a downturn uh, or employment below a certain threshold 
Um, okay. This for sure. Okay. Is, there, is there a sense of, of looking at what is the better predictor for approval rates if you look at the various ways of measuring and approval no, issues? I, I'm not an expert on polls on American elections, but I remember that there has never happened that an American president got reelected with unemployment higher than, don't remember, 9%, 8.3. Uh, the measure is actually very precise. Right. Okay, now having said something, you can say some more. <laughs> the last question, I'm afraid. A um, couple of observations and a question. Um, our friend here at the back was talking, and you sort of largely concurred about the need for unemployment to actually keep debased wage rates. Right? Um, I would like to suggest actually that, capital, that as distinct from what society owes the unemployed, I would suggest what capital owes the unemployed. Now, what, and why I'll pick that out from the, the, not just the pure numbers of unemployed, but it actually the very necessity to identify both numbers, diversity, skills within a labour market that's in waiting, which is the way I really like to describe unemployment, you know, redeployment, not unemployment, but that's another, that's another story. So there's that. And then the other point that our colleague in the middle was saying about um, fact that there was no politicians that he could actually think of, and I think I agree with him, that actually would take out take up the challenge for actually talking about uh, the underdog, basically, in the, in the fullest sense of the word. Um, I would like to suggest that's not, un, that's not unreasonable, taking on board the fact that world free trade as such, you were holding against the tide, it's just not national tide, which you can largely do, but now we've got this new ball game, which I don't think is helped too many countries around the world who live in the world free trade. That's that side. Now the question for our, our friend from Turkey. Um, I've travelled extensively many times in Turkey, love the country. You know? um, but um, knowing, and I'd like to be in the European Union as soon as possible, but equally I would say that if we were joining the common market now, we were joining the common market now, um, and the formation. I think we would be thinking in terms of quotas, right? the movement of uh, economic migrants across Europe. Um, now, the reason I say that, not because I necessarily fear, but I would suggest to you, and this is a question I'd like you to um, sort of um, elaborate on if you can, is that the quality experience of those people who are actually coming in under the quota would be far, far better, and it actually might play into the hands of our a friendly when he was talking about the people working in the, um, the greenhouses, greenhouses mm -hmm. correct, Eric, and having one person from there. But the same equivalent, I would suggest it's quite possible <coughs> that the wage rates, hence you were talking about how to raise the wage rates, would actually be far better. And the, the, um, the makeup and the um, well-being of the total country would be far better if it was viewed on that basis. But anyway, okay, know, maybe so a Last word. Oh. Okay, so the, the rest of them don't have a say. I, I <laughs> um, well, what intrigued me most was what you said in the beginning, you know, unemployment as, 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 as disciplining uh, wages. Uh, the relationship between unemployment and wages is a lot more complex than that. You have to look at uh, segments of uh, the labor force. For some segments, that could very well be the case, but there are also situations where um, uh, employers are known to have uh, paid higher than market wages, so to speak, 
just to discipline workers in, in cases where they can't monitor uh, workers very well, they uh, make sure that they will be um, loyal and that they will work hard by paying them a little more than market wage because if they are caught and they don't uh, do what they're expected of, they will be unemployed and, and the wages that they can return to the market with will be a lot lower than their current wages. So this is just one example of how complex that relationship uh, can be. No, please, please. Uh, I'm sorry? Are there many of those clever employees? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, Henry Ford was one of them, perhaps the most well-known. Uh, he doubled wages, um, and then he solved a lot of his company's problems. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's one. That, uh, but as for perhaps the Turkish angle side of your question, um, uh, of course, there'll be quotas, uh, but I don't think that uh, this fear that uh, you know all Turks will be ready to migrate to uh, Europe will will be realized. That's uh, far from being the case. And uh, our friend who's going to go there as part of the delegation uh, will probably uh, uh, learn more along those uh, lines. But uh, sure, there will be a segment of the population, the young, who have the time horizon to benefit from this investment. This is a huge investment. Immigration is a huge investment. It's very costly uh, and um, so people, uh, only young people are going to uh, do this. And, and furthermore, you have to make sure that you actually have some chance of being employed. So your, your skills uh, will uh, surely uh, matter uh, in that uh, decision uh, as well. Um, but of course, there are also a segment of the population who will be very desperate and, and might consider uh, taking these chances as they have in the 60s and the 70s uh, at all costs, uh, and um, it, it has to be surely uh, regulated. Okay, thank you. Well, our time horizon has just come to zero. And, uh, <laughs> I, I did wonder what would happen. We have an economist, a political economist, and a philosopher, and the answer is that was great. So thank you very much. <laughs>